walkings on your porch And there's a chill out in the air First we give thanks and eat a turkey dinner Then like that it's Santa Claus everywhere Every station's got jingle bells on repeat And the store's got the lights on way too bright Even though you're feeling holidays and confused But everything will be Guitar in that cornucopia. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah, you do, baby. Play, play Everything will be. Everything will be. All the days will be. All right, all right, all right. How great is it that it finally got cold? I mean, plunged down into the 40s. My grandfather lived in Beaumont, Texas his whole life, and when it dipped below 60, he went and put on his long john underwear. He would have been absolutely frozen frigid right now. But it is that time, and it also means that the days are getting shorter as we approach Christmas. The Christmas crunch is on the way. You know, one of the greatest Christmas challenges that Julie and I have faced together as husband and wife and mom and dad is the challenge that I refer to as graduated gift giving. Graduated gift giving. What I mean by that, when, when Emily and Joseph were little kids, it was easy to wow them on Christmas morning. It was easy for them to walk in and, and be blown away by what Santa had given as well as what Julie and I would be giving them. They, they would come in and, and, and there were, you know, when they were really little, it was trikes and then bikes and then there were play sets and, 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 and all these little tykes toys that took up enormous amounts of real estate around the Christmas tree. I remember one year there was even an actual teepee by the tree tree on Christmas morning. It was just like, whoa! But as our kids get older, haven't you noticed that, that they kind of graduate from, from toys and play sets to electronics and gadgets, things that are a lot smaller, they don't carry quite the visual punch that some of those bigger things did when they were little. And, and so as parents, as the ones in charge of Christmas, we kind of analyze their age and monitor their maturity, and we try to line up the gifts so that they fit where they are in age and maturity. How many of you know that, that the giver of the gift has to make sure that the gift fits? The give e. Matter of fact, turn to your neighbor right now and tell them the gift's got to fit. The gift has got to fit. And it's finding that fit for the give e that gives the giver, from time to time I've heard, a lot of stress. It can create some anxiety as we approach the day, the morning, not Christmas Eve, because that's wrong, but Christmas morning. And what's really fascinating is that all of this fitting together of gift and give e from the giver, fascinatingly enough, 
creates all of this anxiety and this stress. As a matter of fact, did you know that the American Psychiatric Association, can I just tell you something as an aside? I've been trying to say that all week. As I've been preparing, I can, American Psychiatric Association has studied the stress associated with gift giving. Look at these, check these numbers out. The percentage of us who say that gift giving increases stress during the holidays is 70%. 70% of us get overly stressed out during the holidays. The percentage of us who say that financial concerns increase stress during the holidays is 89% of us, 9 out of 10 of us. The percentage of us who feel that the commercialism and holiday hype increase the stress, 79%. Now, I, I don't mean to minimize those things. I think those figures and the anxiety and the stress that they represent are actually very real. But, to, but real quickly, let's just take a minute and try to maybe kind of dial back, dial down some of that stress by just kind of laughing at the irony it is so ironic, or as I like to say, ironical, that, which is not a word, my mom's an English teacher, but it's ironical that we create, that we generate so much stress and anxiety, specifically around giving gifts and the finances attached to them. We create and we generate this stress so that we can celebrate the birth of the Prince of Peace. Now, I don't care who you are. That right there is funny. That is just comical that we get so amped up. And also when you think about the fact that Jesus throughout his earthly ministry spoke more to the issue of our relationship to finances and material things than he ever did heaven or hell, why do we get so wrapped around the axle of money and things, particularly during this time of year? And I believe that as we've said throughout this series, the holidays really just crystallize anxiety and stress that's there throughout the rest of the year. But embedded in the birth record of Jesus' life, I believe, is both the cause and the solution to this stress situation. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope you bring your Bibles, whether it's an actual paper and leather-bound book that you brought out of your mahogany library at home, or on your phone, just bring a Bible when you come to church. That's a good rule of thumb. Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, the Bible records a part of the story that has become iconic for us as we celebrate Christmas. If you go back in time and maybe you've been to, to Christmas pageants in years past and you've seen live animals walk across the stage and actual cattle lowing while the baby was sleeping, you've probably seen the appearance of the wise men, the wise men who, who came to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to just yell out your answer. How many wise men came to celebrate the birth of Jesus? How do you know that? No, it doesn't. I appreciate you trying, and I love that you read the Bible, but nowhere in Scripture does it say that there were three wise men. It just says wise men. Now, there's a reason why we're going to get into it in just a second, but we don't know how many wise men showed up. It might have been two. It might have been 20. It could have been 200. We don't know, but we do know that they did show up. Look in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 
The Bible says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men, some wise men, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. So this is where we get the story of the the wise men. It might have been three, we don't know. It's kind of fascinating. I just wanted to ask you as a little zinger to see if you were paying attention. The wise men showed up in order to worship Jesus. But before we get to the wise men, let's take a look at King Herod. Herod was a fascinating cat. Now, Herod was the king of Judea. Judea was that little piece of land in Palestine. It was west of the Jordan River, east of the Mediterranean. It included Jerusalem and Bethlehem and that area where Jesus spent most of his life. But at this time, Herod was the king of this area. It was about the size of of Delaware. It's not a big space. But he was the king only because the Roman Empire allowed him to be the king. So he was kind of king. He he was the king as long as he maintained the peace and the tax dollars kept rolling in, Rome would let him call himself King Herod. And he took his role very seriously. So when the wise men show up, they they, they roll up and say, hey, where's the king of the Jews? Herod's kind of like, oh, no, you didn't. I'm the king of the Jews. What do you you mean the king of the Jews? of the Jews. And they're like, no, 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 we, we saw a star, and that's what brought us here to find out where he is. And so we, we want to worship the king of the Jews. Now, I want you to look back at that, the, the verse 3. It says, King Herod was deeply disturbed. He was deeply disturbed. Now, that, that's a fascinating turn of a phrase, because New Testament scholars are, are kind of torn on the best way to render that phrase. Deeply disturbed is fine as far as it goes, but some others have said that it actually means King Herod was terrified or he was in turmoil. Another one says the best translation for the original language is that he was greatly agitated. He was greatly agitated. How many of us in the last two months have gotten greatly agitated? Let me just see a show of hands. my, My hand's up. I'm not proud of it, but I've gotten deeply agitated. Let me give you another term. King Herod was having, this was a a Herod hissy. He was having a Herod hissy fit. This was a fit for a king. He was upset because he felt like Jesus' birth, the birth of the king of the Jews that the wise men were asking about, posed a mortal threat to his political reign. Now, You and I, with the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight, we know that Jesus never overthrew a government or a political system. That wasn't what he was here about. As a matter of fact, that created a a lot of dismay and frustration for some of his followers that he wasn't here to overthrow the Roman Empire, to overthrow Herod's reign. But make no mistake about it. Jesus absolutely posed a mortal threat to Herod's reign in the same way that he poses a threat to my reign, to to your reign. You see, Jesus came to end the reign of me, me, because 
The reality is I was born into this world like you were born into this world, liking to reign. We, we like to call our own shots, don't we? I mean, if you don't believe this, you've never spent any time with a three-year-old. I, I don't, whoever came up with the term the terrible twos, I don't know who that was because three is where it really kicks in. And I've, I've shared with you, Julie and I have shared with you before that we discovered with the birth of our firstborn, Emily, the blessings of a strong-willed child. And I remember when Emily was born and, and she came into the world just wide-eyed, looking around. She was checking everything out, not missing a thing the day she was born. But when she was about two and a half, three years old, all of a sudden she attempted a coup and revolution in our household. You see, up until that point, Julie and I thought we were in charge. But at two and a half, three years old, Emily orchestrated a horrific revolution within our home where she tried to assume control and command. And I have to be honest with you, as a young father, I didn't know how to respond to this rebellion. I remember thinking when Emily was so little and she would get so fired up if we just, Julie said it like this, if I told Emily you can't have that pair of shoes, for example, I would get the same response as if I said, Emily, I'm going to cut off your arm. It, it was just, I mean, zero to 100 in 0.5 seconds. And, and I'm a fairly competitive guy, and I remember thinking, I'm not losing to something this small. I will tell her how it's going to be, and so I would escalate. She matched me step for step up the escalator of fire, anger, and vitriol. I mean, it was unbelievable. But then, finally, by the grace of God and with a godly wife, I, I figured out something, that we were still in charge. We, we kind of were the king of our household as long as God let us be the king like Rome was letting Herod be the king. We, we were going to be the king, and so we could absolutely draw the line, and I didn't have to yell. I didn't have to escalate. I could just say, no, Emily, we're not going to do that. And because I was bigger, I could pick her up and carry her where I needed her to be. <laughs> and a few times I did. But I understand Emily. I understand Herod. We all want to be the king of me. We, we all have that innate desire and drive that, that Jesus said, ultimately, is not going to work. And it's that inherent drive within each and every one of us to be the king that manifests itself in how we manage our money. You see, that, that's, that's the ultimate issue of money is who's in charge? Am I going to be in charge or is God going to be in charge? And as long as I'm in charge, I'm going to be like Herod. I'm going to be deeply disturbed I'm going to be in turmoil. I'm going to be anxious because that money, man, that, that represents my work. That represents my worth. That represents my control. That represents safety. That represents security. And, and, it's, and it's that king of me in money that is at the root of all of our financial anxiety and stress. That it's at the root of all of the concern, whether it's holiday-related, or an everyday reality. 
that is at the heart of it. And so when Herod had this Herod hissy fit, we could get judgment and go, oh, man, that's so self-centered, but let's be careful. Herod was really concerned about himself and his political realm. You and I are concerned about our personal and spiritual realm. And yes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Maybe the clearest expression of the gospel and the good news of Jesus that ever was. But make no mistake about it. Jesus desires an overthrow in your life and in my life. He requires complete surrender. It's why Jesus said to follow him meant that we would take up our cross. That it, it means to die to self. It's not just self-help and, hey, have a nice life because I'm a Christian and I go to church. But it's literally to die to self. Paul said, for to me, to die is gain, but to live is Christ. So it's a very real surrender that has to happen. And just as King Herod represents the cause of our financial anxiety, our spiritual angst and worry, the wise men, the wise men represent the solution. Look at what happens. They, they approached Herod and said, where's the king of the Jews? Then they figured out how to get to Bethlehem. And when they got to Bethlehem, here's what happened. Verse 11. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Now, we know because of where God fills in the blanks biblically that Herod was a murderous tyrant because he was so threatened by this king of the Jews that the wise men told him about. He ordered the massacre of every male Jew born in that region under the age of two. And it was that decree that he issued that Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt when God warned them in a dream to leave Judea because of this murderous rampage that Herod went on. But it's the wise men. It's the wise men here in Bethlehem. It's the wise men as they approached that shows us how to eliminate holiday stress and anxiety, financial stress and anxiety. What does it say? Verse 11, they entered the house and they bowed down and worshiped him. They bowed down and worshiped him. Now, you need to understand this about the wise men, or the, or the magi, if you will. We're not sure exactly what country they came from. They came from a land east of Judea. But as magi, or wise men, they would have been the, the intelligentsia, the, the intellectuals of that day. And in that era, the study of the stars corresponded to philosophy. So they were... They were 
scholars and technologists, as well as philosophers and statesmen. They, they occupied a high, high status in that land in that day. It, it would be like today, I don't know, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, and Mark Zuckerberg showing up at the doorstep. And these wise men, these elites of the day, bowed down. They, they, they bowed down and they worshiped the child, Jesus. Now think about that for a second. That's a staggering picture. To have the elites, the brightest of the bright, wealthy, bow down and worship a child. They recognized his status. And the gifts that they gave are significant as well. Matter of fact, I want you to take out your, your program that you got when you came in this morning and write down gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Just write that on the notes page inside your program. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, because it's significant. Now, gold is one of those things that's kind of been a constant throughout human history. It's always been a rare and precious thing, and, and, it, and it is a gift that is particularly appropriate for royalty. Gold represents royalty, and the wise men recognized Jesus' sovereignty. Whereas Herod was threatened by it, the wise men recognized it. And so they opened up their treasure chest, and they gave him gifts of gold, this child, this infant. Frankincense. Frankincense is one of those things that is not as, as common in our world but in that day and age, frankincense was, was an aromatic offering that was used in worship. Frankincense was used in Hebrew, in Jewish worship. It would be placed on the altar as offerings were burned and lifted up to God so that it created a fragrant aroma. That's why God says in the book of Psalms that the praises of his people are a fragrant aroma to him. So when you and I sing, when we lift up our voices and worship him, when we make our work, our worship, God says that's like a fragrant aroma to him. The fragrant aroma would be frankincense. Frankincense represents worship and recognizing his status and lifting him up. Worship is a great word. You ought to write down the word worship. It comes from the old English meaning worthiness. It's, it's worthy-ship, and it's just been contracted over the years to mean worship. It's an expression of the worthiness of God of our praise. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know what, I'm not really religious, but I'm spiritual. I'm not really into organized religion, but I'm, I'm spiritual. That is true of all of us. Whether you're into organized religion or not, we're all spiritual. Because we all worship something. We all worship something or someone in practice, if not in intentionality. We all worship something. We all worship someone. And the wise men were worshiping Jesus through these gifts of gold and, and frankincense. Myrrh. Say myrrh. Myrrh. That's a weird word, isn't it? Myrrh. 
M-Y-R-R-H. You know what the primary use of myrrh was in Jesus' day? It was an embalming agent. It was a spice that was used to stave off the effects of decomposition. And so the wise men recognized Jesus' sovereignty as royalty, the king of kings, and they worshipped him with frankincense. But they also gave the gift of myrrh in recognition of his sacrifice. It, It was a gift. It was the gift of a lifetime, literally, because you wouldn't use myrrh until you were already gone. And this was the ultimate purpose of Jesus' birth, was that he would die. That he would go to the cross, become my sin, become your sin, and then flip the power of sin on its head in his resurrection. And in his resurrection, offer you and me New life, forgiveness, completion, restoration, redemption. And so all of a sudden, these gifts that the wise men brought that that we've heard about and read about for years and years and years, and that's the reason that we thought there were only three wise men, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three gifts, three guys, right? Well, we don't know, but the gold is his sovereignty. It's the recognition that he is God and I am not. The frankincense, to to worship him because he's God, to celebrate him, to ascribe to him the worthiness, the worthy ship that he is due. But then also in the myrrh to recognize the sacrifice. The sacrifice that he would ultimately pay on the cross. Here, the wise men enter and they find Mary and and Jesus. But about 33 or so years later, they would have seen Mary at the foot of a cross, mourning the death of her son. But on the third day, celebrating his resurrection. And so when you understand the sovereignty and the authority of Jesus over every part of life, what are we doing getting wrapped up around money? What what, what are we doing freaking out over Christmas presents by the tree and whether or not we're going to have to go into debt at 19% interest, which is stupid, We're smart, but that's dumb. In order to celebrate the birth of the Prince of Peace. He's in charge of it all anyway. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so we trust him. We trust him as our provider. Which means we're content right now as is. Materially, financially, doesn't mean we don't have goals, doesn't mean we don't have a vision or a dream. But in this moment, I'm going to choose to be content because I'm not going to tell God he hasn't given me enough. I'm going to be faithful with what I have in this moment. 
And, and as an expression of that faithfulness, I'm going to be content. And in my contentment, I'm going to find peace. I'm going to find satisfaction. You see, money's not about money. Things aren't about things. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, where your heart is, there your treasure will also be. See, where, where we, we put our stuff, that's the clearest representation of where our hearts really are. So that, that's the genius, that's the beauty of, of the tithe. It, it's an opportunity to worship God, ascribe worthiness to him as our provider, but also to say, 10% of the whole hundred that you've entrusted to me, boom, there it is, God. I'm going to trust you that you're going to take care of all of my needs with the rest of that 90% that you've entrusted to me. And that tithe is, that's a first fruits kind of thing. That's not like if there's money left over, that's the first, that's the first thing I do. And then I'm going to use the rest of that faithfully, and I'm going to celebrate that in everything that I do. But it's not even, it's not even, a, the tithe is a tool to get us where God wants us to be. Peaceful, content, and worshiping. Peaceful, content, and worshiping. The greatest gift you can give your family this Christmas season is peace, contentment, and worship. To be a person of peace, contentment, and worship. And it begins by doing what the wise men did. Just bowing down and worshiping. Surrendering your rights as maybe you're a member of the intelligentsia. Maybe you're really, really smart. Maybe you just think you're really, really smart. But you... But you Maybe, maybe you are a self-made man or woman. Maybe you're a student who's got it going on. But for whatever reason, you haven't yet bowed the knee to Jesus. Why not right now? Why not in this moment acknowledge that he is God and you're not? Worship him. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. For just a brief moment. If you're here today and you have never bowed your knee spiritually to Jesus, we want to invite you to do it. To choose to be a person of peace, contentment, and worship. Just right where you're sitting, pray. Just silently talk to God. He's God. He, he gets it and he will receive this prayer. Just silently say to him, Jesus, I need you. You are God and I am not. 
And in this moment, for the first time, I admit it. And Jesus, I celebrate it. I confess my sin to you. And I claim, I accept your forgiveness. And from this moment forward, I will follow you. From this moment forward, you are my king. Jesus, thank you. ask you just to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for a moment. You know, we, we bow our heads as a sign of reverence. This is a reverent, holy moment. But very, very quickly, if that was your prayer and you meant it for the first time in your life, I want to just talk to you if I can for just a brief second. First of all, this is the biggest, most important moment of your life. Second of all, everybody in this room as part of the Lake Hills Church family celebrates that in your life because that's why we exist. It's why we do everything that we do. And so as a church, we would love to know that God did that in your life, and we'd love to help take the next step in your faith journey. And the best way to do that is through the connection card that's the connect card that's in your program. So if you just pray that prayer, I want to ask you to open that program up just quietly right where you're sitting, open it, and fill it out name, contact information, and just indicate there, I'm committing my life to Christ this week. And before you leave, you can tear that off at the perforation right down the middle and just hand that card to one of our ushers. Just, just make a brief moment for a personal connection. You've already made that connection with Christ and with, with God, but His church, His bride, is who we are, and we want to help in any way that we can. Second, as we continue in this moment, and our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand? Would you just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head, unmistakably, but know that as you raise your hand, you're, you're stamping this moment in your life, to, to mark it and go, this is real, this happened, but also in the life of this church. And as you hold that hand up, you just know that you're surrounded by people who love you, people who believe in you and want to help. We want to be a family of faith to you. And you can put your hands down, but as you do that, we're going to put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home.